So this will not be your average sermon. There's a couple of reasons. Hey, Joel and Terry, by the way, welcome back from Fiji. Give them a hand. They're all the way from long way away. Very long way. Good to see you guys. Um, this will not be your average sermon for a couple of reasons. Number one, because of moving has been crazy, and so I'm going to be doing mostly reading, but also the topic. The topic is different. It's different. And so... I want you to look at this morning's message like a window, I guess you could say a window into a parallel. Jesse Kaler, how are you? Good to see you. Jesse Kaler, pastor from Archbold, Ohio. Give him a hand. Give him a hand. He's a, he's, at a, he's a better pastor than I am, and he was my disciple. It's a blessing to see him. I'm sorry I'm so, uh, you know, my mind is scattered. We've moved into this new place. So I'm going to read. So I want you to look at this morning's message like a window into a parallel universe. You could say what we're going to encounter this morning is a clash of cultures. It's going to be a clash of cultures. So I want you to travel with me. I'm going to be your guide, and you need this. We're going to use this a lot, so get this out. This is called a Bible. And in this is God's Word, and we're going to use this an awful lot. So just be prepared for that. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. Because normally I try not to use too many verses, but we're going to use a lot today. Our next topic in Proverbs is going to be approached, I would say, in a new way. Here, our first topic was, where'd it go, Jared? It's wisdom. This is what we talked about the first week, wisdom. Because when we go to Proverbs, we are going to Proverbs to find God's insight, His wisdom. Last week, we talked about fear. And so this topic is going to kind of catapult off of fear. All of this is related, and we're going to talk about this topic. It's the king. That's what our topic is going to be. In order to talk about the king, we must retrain our brains because we've been hardwired to think in a culture that is far away from the Davidic dynasty in the rule of King Solomon the Wise and terrifying. We're far away from that world. We are, we are Americans. America. That's who we are. We are raised in the democratic ooze of liberty and luxury, which has been leading us to lethargy. We're just lazy. And we're free. That's why we're lazy, because we can do what we want. We're Americans. We are products of the pursuit of happiness, individual freedom, Ever fighting, I think our biggest goal now is we are now fighting not for freedom, we're fighting for relaxation and amusement. That's our big battle these days. We are creatures of the couch and comfort controls. Rare is the calloused hand stained with soil and dirt. Our parents fought hard to keep us well-fed, carefree, and left alone. That's how Francis Schaeffer had put it. We are affluent and we just want to be left alone. And our parents have worked hard to let us do that. They work hard to let us sit in the basement all day to play video games while we have a bowl of Doritos right next to us. We've worked hard for that. We've earned it. We're Americans. We are kings and queens, princes and princesses of our own making, bowing our knee to no ruler other than our own appetite. 
we have more than we ever needed or wanted. We are Americans. Don't tread on me. Americans, the customer's always right. Americans, have it your way. Have it your way. Hold the pickles. Hold the lettuce. Special orders don't upset us. All we ask you is that you let us serve us your way. We're Americans. So when we crack open the white pages of Proverbs, seldom read white pages, mind you, we find a whole different world. Holy other. A world that begins with fear, which leads to loyalty, and should end in honor. Go to Proverbs 24.21. This is the verse I've chosen for this week. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 21 and 22. It's a warning shot over the bow, awakening us to a different world. It's an echo sounding from a distant past you and I are not familiar with. So Proverbs 24, 21 says, My son, my son, because Solomon's writing to his child, my son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not join with those who do otherwise, for disaster will arise suddenly from them, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. My son, fear the Lord and the king. But we cry with our 21st century voice, what king? What king? Seriously. I owe allegiance to no man. Could this be referring to the current government, the laughing stock we call the Washington elite? Never! I send them my taxes so they must serve me. I would sooner eat mud than honor those on Capitol Hill, is what most people would say. And one thing, I would definitely not fear them. Do you fear Donald Trump? Honestly, our press surely doesn't. They savage him daily, and if it wasn't for our tradition of rule of law, he would have been hung by the angry mob the moment he was elected. We don't fear him. Did we fear Barack Obama? Many of you in here created the template of hate for Barack Obama that is now cast upon President Trump. So what's good for the goose should be good for the gander now, right? So why are you complaining? You did it before, so why shouldn't they do it now? Fear the king? What does that even mean? Let me try to explain an experience I had to get us to a place of understanding. It was very hot and sticky July in the year 1995. My wife and I were training in the 112 degree heat of eastern Illinois, as we prepared to head to the former Soviet Union for a whole year, one whole year. Our assignment was simple. We were preparing to teach a Christian ethics and morality curriculum to Russian public school teachers. We are assigned to work with a team of four other gung-ho Americans ready to bring our American pragmatism, ingenuity, and democratic ideals to the poor, ignorant Russians who were surely hungry to hear about our land of the free, I'm sure they were. So there, the six of us set out on an Aeroflot airline, that's a Russian 
um, like steel box that has two wings that should not fly. Heading for Moscow, we are full of high hopes, dreams, and blind arrogance. Little did we actually know what awaited for us in the land of Lenin and Stalin. I will never forget landing at the Moscow airport. Here is what I wrote in my journal of my first impressions of Moscow airport. Cold. Things seem cold. Arrival in the airport was strange. No one was there. It smelled like alcohol and urine. The lighting was dim, flickering, and yellow. We were told to watch our suitcases close because gypsies were roaming the lobby, and outside the airport doors stood armed guards holding machine guns and wearing flak jackets. Toto, we were not in Kansas anymore. American culture, this was not, nor would it be for a whole year. I can remember just wanting a slice of pepperoni pizza and Lay's potato chips. That's all I wanted. Was that too much to ask for? Yes. We were in Russia. Cabbage and garlic, comrades. Cabbage and garlic. At the local stores, the customer was never right. At the local store, the customer was never right. You never had it served your way. And the whole culture was set up to tread on the little guy. I can remember about two months into our Russian living, I had to get on the bus to go buy some bread. We were out of bread, so I had to go to the bread store to get some bread. I got on a bus. I sat in the back of the bus. It was an empty bus. I had to travel about a mile and a half. Every stop, more and more Russians came on. And I started getting squeezed and squeezed like sardines in a can. And all I could smell is garlic and Russian body odor. And I was getting angry. I'm an American. You're impeding my rights and my space. I stood up. I was so angry. I can't even tell you. I said, get off me. And I pushed the whole bus. And out the front door of the bus tumbled an old babushka, grandma. She landed on the cement. She hit her head on the sidewalk. The doors closed. And the bus kept moving. No one cared. No one noticed. I was in a culture shock. So was my wife. Every day we asked this question. Why do they do things like this? Why don't they do things like America? The answer is simple. Life is lived differently in different cultures. That's the answer. And in Russia, you were not as important as you thought you were. No one cared about your American ideals of liberty, luxury. And I'll tell you what, they weren't as lethargic as we were because they had to work. They had to work three jobs sometimes. You were in Russia now, Chris. You were in Russia now. Culture shock is shocking. That's why it's called culture shock. And let me tell you, when it comes to fully understanding Proverbs, we all need to undergo a royal culture shock to understand the royalty of the king. Throughout this study, we need to realize we don't matter as much as we think we do. There is someone far more important than our, than our American rights. We call him Jehovah the King, the Lord. Our first order of business, according to Proverbs, is to be very careful as we approach his presence. 
I want to show you two places in Proverbs and one in Ecclesiastes. Go to Proverbs 20, verse 2. Listen closely. Proverbs 20, verse 2. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Now that's a culture shock. Do you understand that? I don't think we understand that. I don't know how to explain this. Look, it says the same thing in Proverbs 19.12. A king's wrath is like the growling of a lion. But his favor? Ah, it's dew on the grass. Go over one book to the right and go to Ecclesiastes. That should be two books, one Song of Solomon. And it, no, that's one book. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 24. And just listen really closely. Verse 2 to 4. Ecclesiastes 8, 2 to 4. I say, and this is Solomon writing this too, who wrote Proverbs. I say, Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases, for the word of the king is supreme. The word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Who has the right to go to the king and say, why are you doing what you're doing? Nobody, because the word of the king is supreme. So you could say it like this. The biblical worldview as presented in Proverbs is not democratic. It's not a democracy. We live for someone much greater than the collective will of the people. The king carries more weight than the majority vote. And I want to argue today that our king is obvious. It's obvious who our king is, but he's neglected. He's neglected. Let me show you him a second. Go to Revelations chapter 1. Revelations 1, 4 to 6 identifies him, and in Revelations 1, 12 to 17 describes him as he is. Revelations 1, 4 to 6. Revelations, the last book in the Bible. Verse 4 John to the seven churches that are in Asia. This is verse 4. Grace to you. And peace from him who is, so he's, he's present now, who was, he was in the past, and who is to come, he will be in the future. So it's a statement of eternality. He is, he was, and he is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, means he was the first one to rise up, and he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the ruler over the rulers. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory, not just glory, but dominion. Dominion. Dominion means he owns everything and he has rights to reign over everything. He's the king forever and ever. What is he like? Look at verse 12. This is what our king is like. John got to see him as he is right now. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe. 
and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Have you ever looked at the sun straight on? Verse 17, John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Do you fear his majesty? Ah, no, man, I'm an American. I'm an American. And so the answer is only if I feel like it at the time. I'm an American, man. Don't tread on me. And why should I when I can't even see him? We, I'm telling you, that's how we behave every day. We just do. I'll, do, I'll obey him if I want to. But Scripture's worldview says, Scripture's culture says, it is his voice we must fear, his command we must heed, we serve him. Look at Proverbs again. Go back to Proverbs. Proverbs 14, in verse 35, he's saying, a servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. question I think we have to ask is do we want the king's favor because that is the goal of the biblical culture that's biblical worldviews aim American worldview is the pursuit of happiness biblical worldview is the pursuit of his happiness his favor it is not the pursuit of our happiness it's his happiness Proverbs 22:11. look what this says really similar it tells you how you procure his favor He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, that means kind, full of grace, will have the king as his friend. How do you gain favor, which is friendship, which is God's blessing? Be pure. Jesus says it like this. Here's how Jesus says Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Is this not what you want? Like, I think we have all been made to want that more than anything. And I think the reason we don't want it is because we are so impure, we feed off of junk that we don't want what's good, and what's good is knowing Him. That's the highest good. Go to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. This is, to me, this is one of the most amazing psalms. It's like no other psalm. There's some psalms that talk about how he takes care of me, he's good for me. There's some psalms that tell us to remember what he did in the past. But Psalm 45, his singular attention is on the king. And watch how it's written. It's stunning to me. I love this psalm. 
But the point of it is, is this is the desire of the psalmist's heart above all things. He begins in verse 1, my heart overflows. My heart, it's just so full with a pleasing thing. Let me tell you about it. That's what he's saying. Let me tell you about it. I'm going to address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready scribe. That means I am so overwhelmed and full of joy with the subject. I just got to write it down. I got to tell you. What is he writing about? Verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and majesty, in your majesty, write out victoriously for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. Let your right arrows, let your right hand teach your awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. Peoples fall under you. This is a, what's called a messianic psalm. This psalm is used about Jesus in about five different places, specifically in the book of Hebrews. Look at what verse 6 says. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness, purity, goodness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. One person wrote that Jesus was probably the most joyful person who ever lived. The king's presence is joy at his right hand forevermore, is what Psalm 16 says. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Not only is he beautiful and full of everything I ever wanted, I really should bow to him. Does this stir you? I must admit, I'll be honest with you, the, the, the essence of the Christian faith is a strange thing. I don't think we get it. We are not here, we are not here to do good things, necessarily, primarily. Ultimately, we are not here to do good things or to be good. We are not even here to institute social change. The church should bring social change. That's not necessarily why we're here. It happens naturally, but it's not our ultimate goal. We are not even here to produce perfect people. We are here to love a king. A person. Our mind needs to shift. We need a royal culture shock. And here's where the shift begins. Just to be honest with you, the shift begins right here in this moment. Jesus, the man from Nazareth, is seated on his throne next to his father at this moment. Do you believe that? I mean, when that, whatever you do, do you actually believe that? That at this moment there's a real man. He's got real hands. He can see everything, and he's sitting right now. I think he hears me right now. This isn't a fairy tale. Is it? We don't just come to be... Wow, that was a nice sermon. We come to learn of this man. 
Our job is to find His favor. That's it. That's all. It's not about us. Who cares how big our church is? Who cares how many programs we run? The question is, how do we treat the King? Who cares how rich and happy I am? Do you serve the King? Are you loyal to the King? Do you honor the King? Do you love Him? To me, understanding this should rock our world. Go back to Proverbs 25, 6, and 7. Proverbs 25, 6, and 7. This is, you'll, Jesus actually used these two verses as a parable he told later. But listen to what he's saying. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. In other words, to me, what he's saying is when you serve the king, you must lose yourself. This is the opposite of any kind of name it, claim it theology, or I'm here for health and wealth, or we're running a seeker-friendly service. This is talking about fear. It's talking about in comparison to the king, I am nothing. I'm, I, am, I can't even believe I'm allowed into his presence. Who am I? But we're American. You could ask it like this, honestly, what does the king really owe you? What does he owe you? The final warning about just the awesomeness or austerity of the king is in Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16, 14, and 15. A king's wrath is a messenger of death. A wise man will appease it. You'd be really wise to keep the king happy. In the light of a king's face, there's life. His favors like the clouds that bring spring rain. Because when you do, he gives you life. But I can hear people saying, ah, but... You're saying, so I'm to be a servant. I'm to be a, I'm to be a servant. That's so demeaning. It's soul, it's soul sapping. Why would I want to submit my life to someone else when I'm free? When I've been given liberty? Because of who he is. Because of who the king is. Though he is fearsome, our king is like no other human despot or dictator. He is the one person that absolute power will not corrupt precisely because he's incorruptible. He's better than all. He's sinless. Look at Proverbs 20, 28. We're going to camp on this for a little bit. It's really interesting when Jared and I plan songs, we don't necessarily go through the whole thing, but he was talking about mercy. And that's exactly what this is about. Look at what verse 28 says. It talks about how he sits enthroned, how his, his kingdom is established in 2028. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. 
That word steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. Or mercy and kindness, loving kindness. So you could say this, if you want to talk about his character, he's a kind king. To me, this is where culture shock becomes the most obvious. Most kings flaunt their power. Come to think of it, most bosses of small and large companies flaunt their power. Many pastors and parents do. Coaches and teachers love power. They love power. Give someone an ounce of power and kindness goes out the window because we think kindness is a form of weakness. So as humans, we rule other humans with harshness. We show our power. We flex it. It's how we win. Jesus says something in Matthew 20, 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among you. It shall not be. It shall not be among you. Stop lording it over. Why? Why shouldn't it be? Because our king's kingdom is established on steadfast love. Are you a boss? Stop acting like a Gentile king. Are you a parent? Do you demand compliance at every turn, offering only irritation and frustration because your kids are being a kid? Stop acting like a Gentile king. And some of you who may not be bosses, parents, or leaders in authority still act like a king when you demand apologies for insults or claim victim status for minor offenses against you. That's not responses of kindness. That's being a petty tyrant. I'm going to hold people under my power because I'm mad. Let it go. Let it go. Jesus did. He died. Jesus gives an amazing parable. This may be one of probably the most important parables he ever gave. So in Matthew 18, turn there a second, because he's talking about how the king behaves and how the king will behave based on our behavior. Matthew chapter 18. Starting in verse 23. Jesus tells us a story of how he rules. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. In our currency, it would probably be about a million to two million dollars. Since he could not pay, his master ordered, listen to what, listen to the, the punishment for not being able to pay the debt. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife. That means sell him, his wife, sell his children, and all that he had, and then payment will be made. He owed so much that he deserved to be sold, his wife sold, his kids sold, and everything he owned sold so he could make payment. That's crazy how much this guy owed. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, 
I'll pay everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. You don't, all right, because of your, because of your demand or your, your pleading, you don't owe me a thing. I mean, is, is that kindness? Is that kindness that God killed his son so your sin would be paid for? I mean, honestly, oh yeah, I'm an American, I deserve that. You don't deserve that payment. You really don't. I think sometimes, especially those who are born in the Christian church, some, sometimes believe we deserve Jesus spilling his blood. No. It's only out of the kindness of the king. And so here's then what happened. And out of pity him, the master servant released him, forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him began to choke him saying, pay what you owe, a hundred denarii, probably ten bucks. Ten bucks. Choked him. Give it back. The guy couldn't pay. So the fellow servant pleaded, have patience with me and I'll pay you back. Don't you think the guy realized what he was forgiven of? No. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said, to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and you and should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers till he should pay his debt. So in his anger, he sold the man, sold his wife, sold his kids and everything he owned. And then he says, so also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. How many of you forgive people? If you don't forgive people, then you have no idea what you've been forgiven. What people have done to you is ten bucks. Ten bucks. Verse 34, look at it again. And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers. So you could say it like this. His throne is establishing kindness, but his kindness can quickly turn to wrath if you are not careful. That's what Proverbs says. Go back to Proverbs 20:26. 20, Proverbs 20:26, 20, a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over. Remember those who didn't forgive he called wicked? He's saying here, wise king, a good king winnows the wicked by driving over them a wheel, a stone wheel. They, you know, when you would thresh wheat, they would have the threshing wheel, the millstone. Remember, if you offend a kid, a millstone would be tied around. This is the same thing. The wicked also should get the millstone. To me, this is royal culture shock. I... I want to warn you if you're worried if you're wicked. The Hebrew word for wicked is resa. It's, here's how the Hebrew dictionary defines this term. Resa is used, and listen close to how he defines wicked. Resa is used to denote an entire category of people who have done wrong and are still living in sin. And who intend to continue with it. 
In other words, punishment is reserved for the person who does not fear the kindness of the king. I'm going to take you to two more places just to elaborate this point. Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26 is a stunning verse to me. Isaiah 26. I told you we'd use the Bibles today. Is that okay? Carol, is that okay? Carol likes it. So we are going to continue on. If you have any complaints about how much I use the Bible, take it up with Carol. Isaiah 26. And look at verses 10 and 11. So it's talking about the wicked again. Resa, same word. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he, does, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. And as a result is verse 11. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Here's what one commentator said. Isaiah is convinced that only divine retribution for wicked people's sins will ever bring them to recognize the folly of their way. So long as their way is easy and prosperous, there is no reason for them to turn to the way of righteousness. The king must be feared if the wicked ever want to be found faithful. And then he did a cross-reference. You don't have to go to this, but it's the scariest verse. It's Psalm 78.34. Psalm 78.34 says, When he killed them, they sought him. <laughs> they repented and sought God earnestly when he killed them. Meaning, when he, the only way you fear the king is if you know he's got the power to punish. And then Psalm 11.4-7 says, The Lord the king is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. So though we live in a democratic nation, though we live in a democracy, we are ultimately ruled by a dictator, a benevolent dictator. While we may nitpick and cast judgment on our president, how dare him, how dare him, look what he did this time, look at that tweet he did. We are daily being nitpicked and judged by the king who is on the throne. We think somehow we can complain, but yet we don't think we're being, we're being watched. We may live in the land of the free, but we are servants, bondservants, slaves of the king. You need to tread lightly before his majesty, you really need royal culture shock. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. This is what he says about the king and the coming of his arrival. We must remain vigilant. We must watch. For the day is coming, but this time the clouds will be removed. He is behind a cloud now, and men perceive him not, except for a few, the remnant. But when he comes again, all veils will be removed, and every eye shall see the glory of his face. For this he waits, and his church waits with him. For we know not when the set time of the king shall arrive, but every hour is bringing it nearer. Those who would not bow before him cheerfully shall be compelled to bow before him abjectly. 
They shall crouch at his feet. They shall lick the dust in terror. And at the glance of his eyes, they shall utterly wither away. Satan and his defeated legions and the lost spirits of ungodly men bite their lips with envy and rage and will tremble at the majesty of Jesus in that day. With what anguish will they sink into hell prepared for them? Because now they hear with anger all earth and heaven and every star ringing with the shout, Hallelujah, 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 for the Lord God omnipotent reigns and the Lamb has conquered by His blood. In other words, you could say it like this, when our king comes, it will be a royal culture shock. Two weeks ago, I uh, took my son to a football camp at Grand Valley State University. The title of the camp was Best in the Midwest. 1,000 athletes showed up from Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Chicago, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Iowa, Kentucky, and Kansas. Most of these students are stars at their respective high schools. And there were some big dudes there, like some monsters, some scary kids. Along with their physical size, most also carried tremendous egos. You could, you could, taste, you could taste their conceit. It's incredible. They knew they were good. You could see them wear pride as a necklace and arrogance as a robe. He could hear him say to themselves, that's right, I'm in the house. I'm in the house. You could see it. It just, it poured off of them. One athlete after another arrived, some wearing tight shirts to show off their size, some cut off sleeves, and all with chins held high. But then you could hear, it was really odd, you could hear a slow whisper. started forming, a whisper. And there was a buzz, and I noticed these once proud men started pointing and talking and looking and whispering, and they kind of got sheepish like little boys. I, I looked to where they were pointing, because there's a bunch of them, even a thousand kids, and they're all kind of walking in, and then all of a sudden they're whispering, and then they're all looking over and they're pointing. You could see them pointing. So I looked where they were pointing, and I saw with my own eyes, Two men who just walked in the door. One was wearing a blue baseball hat with the block letter M in yellow. The other had on a red jacket that had an O on the chest. As they walked in, people stared at them. They had, they had a whole entourage around them, both of them did. These massive students ran up to them just to get a quick selfie, or just to shake their hand. They were like little boys around them. And then they came close to me. I mean, I could throw a rock at them from where I was. It was Jim Harbaugh and my favorite, Urban Meyer, the head coaches of the two powerhouse football teams, Michigan and Ohio State. You could feel the energy around <laughs> Around them, everybody's eye was trained on them. Everyone was hushed around them. Just wait, though. Just wait. Just wait when the king, the king of the stars and the heavens come. 
and shows up, every eye is going to be stopped and mouth shut. You won't be able to take your eyes off of them. It will be a royal culture shock. Are you prepared for it? Today, today, are you living for the king? Or are your rights, your wishes, your wants, your demands, your feelings, your hurts, your longings, all that matter to you? Listen again to Psalm 45.11 here. Consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. 